Good morning, everybody, and thanks for joining us again. It's Wednesday, the 22nd of July, and this is our fourth podcast. I'm Dr. Elise Lang. I'm a GP in North Cardiff. I've also got a role with Macmillan. I'm a Macmillan GP for Wales. I've got three colleagues with me this morning. I'm delighted to introduce them all. I'll go to our, our guest, first of all, who's Dr. Mark Smithies, a consent, consultant in intensive care medicine in the Heath. Mark, would you like to say hello and a brief introduction? Good morning. Uh, yes, I'm uh, very keen to talk to people in primary and community care about uh, our experiences of COVID earlier this year, the impact on services and the impact on patients and their families. Thanks ever so much. And we've got Fiona Rawlinson with us. Hi, everybody. I'm a consultant in the uh, City Hospice uh, Community Palliative Care Team in Cardiff and also director in Cardiff University for Palliative Medicine Postgraduate Programmes. Thank you. And Rachel Lee is with us as well. Hi, thanks, Lee. So I'm Rachel Lee. I'm a GP in Cardiff and also a Metman and GP advisor for Wales. Um, I just want to thank Mark. It's, I'm really looking forward to sort of hearing the ITU side of this. Excellent. So, Mark, I guess the focus of this, this conversation will be with you. The format's just a kind of chat about uh, how COVID is impacted on different things around and about that then impact the community work that, that we do with patients. So I guess, first of all, a very open question would be, you know, how's, how's ITU now in July compared to where you were in January and how did that differ through sort of March and April and, and how, are you, how are you all managing? Well, it's very quiet. Um, uh, and, uh, and it's still not picked up to the pre-COVID levels, actually. Uh, that's in part because surgeons aren't operating and when surgeons don't operate we don't have work to do that's a little unfair but uh, it's certainly the case um, I think that uh, we were we were very quick as a department onto issues when we heard about what was going on in Wuhan because I've been around I'm several of my colleagues have been around a long time and we all remember what happened in 2009 uh, with the flu pandemic, uh, with the flu epidemic, and uh, we were quite prepared then, and we went through a lot of the preparations that we needed to do. And so we started again fairly rapidly, and we're a bit appalled at the rest of the healthcare system really not not uh, gearing up terribly quickly locally. Um, and um, so, so we were uh, we were aware of what was what what might happen, although we had obviously no idea. And we prepared for a quadrupling uh, of the size of critical care. Uh, we um, uh, and uh, we also had to source equipment and staff. I think we pretty early on had a reasonably good idea of what we were going to do about staffing. Um, and uh, uh, although actually the key thing there was that the entire organisation, uh, the whole health board and secondary care. Uh, reordered how they did things to support us, and it was very, very important uh, to us and uh, to the experience that we had huge focus of support from the rest of the hospital and services, in particular anaesthesia, ENT surgery, and, and so on. Um, so we we were then uh, rapidly expanding. I don't know; people may know the Heath Hospital. We are on level three, and we eight into our neighbours on level three and currently occupy pretty much the entire clinical area uh, outside theatres um, on level three today and during the emergency. So we were rapidly expanding and uh, it was a very fraught time. We had to change people's rotors. Uh, there was a lot of consultant input. We had to consult, not only we have consultants 24 seven 
in the hospital anyhow, uh, but we were doubling up. Um, and uh, so things ran pretty efficiently. One of the biggest problems, though, that we faced was communication. And, uh, and that was because we've, because of PPE, actually. Uh, it's very difficult to talk to people through PPE, as I suspect many of you have discovered. Um, and uh, uh, that, to talk to each other, to talk to colleagues, um, and, of course, being in intensive care, what we do is provide life support technology, but we need to talk to the rest of the hospital all the time, and that's very difficult. And my job is to help try and coordinate that during the peak time. And that, that must have been a real challenge for you. I mean, the, the physical restraints of PPE. I mean, we're all glasses wearers as well on this call. You know, the, the steaming up, the, the, the conversations I've had in my consulting room with patients even, you know, this week. Um, it is very hard. Uh, and, you know, that, that the lip quality of, of, of talk when you're watching someone's face is, is lost completely, isn't it? Um, how... What sort of changes did you make in terms of the communication, both, well, I guess, internally, first of all, what sort of impact did that make upon upon the work that you did? Well, that was very difficult because uh, of telephones and lack of IT. Unlike primary care, believe it or not, although in intensive care we've got lots of machines that go ping, we don't have very many that help us communicate. Um, and we're, uh, we're pretty antediluvian. And uh, we have a few cows computers on wheels that we wander around with from time to time. Um, but actually, uh, communication was extremely difficult. And um, we were using runners. Uh, we were used, the telephone system was overloaded and uh, drove the nurses because, of course, we've got one-to-one nurse-patient ratio. So we've got a lot of nurses being driven completely nuts by um, the uh, constantly going telephones. Um, we learned with, with our clinical psychologist, Dr. Julie Highfield, we pretty quickly de- developed a family hub. So some of our shielding nurses who couldn't work uh, in the hot zone for various medical reasons of their own uh, were working off-site, trying to do family liaison. They had a huge difficulties actually communicating with their own colleagues and with medical staff uh, on a day-to-day basis uh, uh, or, or an hour-to-hour basis to let families know what was going on. It was a huge challenge, but greatly appreciated by families when we achieved it. Uh, so... We had all of these issues going on, and uh, uh, we also, of course, had to change the nursing structure. Uh, we knew we'd need lots of other nurses to come and help us. Um, and, of course, there are around the, a lot of the tradition in nursing historically has been that, uh, particularly in acute uh, specialties, that you often do a period in intensive care before progressing onto your chosen specialty field. So we were, re, uh, we were re-educating and had a big program to uh, get nurses to support the ICU nurses uh, in working no longer at one-to-one in the peak, uh, but at one-to-two. And we were prepared to go to one-to-four, I think, uh, and certainly in London that had to happen. Uh, so, you know, there was a lot, a lot, of, a lot of change. I mean, in, in the community, and I'm sure in, on a national level, in the news, we... we... I expect most people got an awareness of that and how much things had to change. And, you know, it goes without saying that we are hugely grateful as, you know, potential patients and and care and medical professionals for those who were potential patients, you know, to try and support everybody out there, the the relatives of of the patients who were on ITU. I mean, it must have been an enormous challenge. Can you talk to us a little bit about how you did that. I've seen some clips on camera about people talking into iPads and things, you know, talk us through how that had to change. And I guess 
my question, just thinking about it, was it limited to how many people could call on that iPad? You know, was it just the one immediate next of kin or, or as you're saying, you know, the, the, the nurses might be pestered continually with different family members calling, you know, how did you manage to deal with some of that requirement for relatives to see and, and speak to their loved ones, despite the fact that they were intubated or, or ventilated? Yeah. So in our intensive care unit, because we've got others, uh, in fact, the respiratory physicians stood up magnificently and did a lot of the non-invasive work um, so pretty much every unit, you didn't, didn't get into us unless you were intubated and, and, and ventilated. Uh, so our challenges there were, yes, we did, we, we ordered, we knew about iPads. We were doing, we were doing stuff with iPads, uh, uh, pretty early on. Uh, they were, I think we had issues about information governance. We were concerned about who was listening or what was being said. So that was a big problem for us. Because uh, we're pretty hot on that. Being a neurosurgical intensive care unit, normally there's lots of accidents, there's lots of medical legal implications to what we do, and so we had grave concerns about that with the iPads. Um, uh, but we certainly use them to demonstrate to patients. Fortunately, our colleagues in Newport—I don't know whether you uh, people appreciate this—did uh, have done an awful lot of public information on the television um, about critical care recently. Um, some become quite famous. And uh, uh, and um, that was really helpful because, of course, then, you know, one one was able to manage expectations a little bit more because people were watching the the general experience. I think we had huge problems about communication of bad news. Uh, how do you do that? How do you learn to do that on a telephone? Uh, and uh, when you've got no, you know, it's all for us. It's all about getting, uh, being sure, and seeking assurance that whoever you're talking to understands the implications of what's going on. And actually, the nonverbal signals are incredibly important for all of that. And that was very tricky, I think. And I think we may not have done as well as we normally would uh, uh, in in that way. Um, and then I think that the well, once we got the family, I was very involved in trying to get the family hub going uh, so that. We could take the workload of communicating uh, seriously, but do it remotely. And uh, that caused a lot of logistical difficulties. But I think we, we did eventually uh, get that to work pretty well. And there was hugely positive feedback um, about that for, for families uh, themselves. I think, nevertheless, it was incredibly difficult to not be visiting. You know, we have families. I mean, it depends. Huge cultural differences between families of all sorts. And, uh, you know, we have families who move the entire family into the corridor outside the ICU for the duration of stay in the ICU of their loved one in ICU. And uh, uh, and then we have families we rarely see um, and everything in between. And but to not have any visiting, I think, was very difficult. We didn't have absolutely no visiting. Uh, I don't think there was, uh, you know, we were very keen to make sure that uh, if somebody's life is coming to an end, that uh, the family were present. Um, and we made huge efforts to make sure that that happened as an organisation. I know that's Fiona's real passion as well, that sort of communicating around, um, you know, serious illness, really, and, and also bereavement. Fiona, was there anything you wanted to sort of say on that topic? Thanks, Elise. It's, it's, it's just, it's really interesting and wonderful and affirming to hear what you did. And I think particularly in those very early days of the pandemic, when there was just so much, so much change happening for everybody everywhere. 
having joined the the bereavement counselling team for a few of the uh, months of the last of the last few months what what the families remember and what they remembered of that time when when we were making bereavement calls or, or talking with people is the care is the care and attention and everybody knew that it was not perfect and that this was a situation well out of everybody's control but they remember the care and attention and the efforts that people went to to try to enable those conversations and so for families now grieving if they've had that experience in a sense that's their anchor that's what they come back to what's been difficult for them is now as lockdown is easing they're reliving some of those early moments again but again that the, the, if, if that communication was handled as you've described that's what that's what people remember um and and i think our challenge now is with all the inquiries that are going on and and the time moves forward and we we sometimes you know you forget sometimes the intensity of that time so actually one of the functions of this podcast is is also just reminding people what it was like grief does very funny things to people and even if people didn't die but have had that impact of serious illness it's it's just knowing that people cared and were doing their best that's been that's been their anchor but it's you know i'm just i'm just imagining the logistics of of, of all those changes to working practices um, that you're describing which yes had to do in, in such a, a, a short space of time but those efforts will have been greatly 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 appreciated oh thank you it's gratifying to hear there's a you know that sort of feedback from patients exper relatives experience Wait, Rachel, would you like to come in on that? Yeah, just to add from the primary care perspective, really, obviously we had we had a, a few relatives of people on intensive care, and I think they felt very helpless, and it was very hard in primary care to know how to support them, but also they were very accepting that this was how it had to be. You know, there was it was a sort of combination, and I think, you know, as Fiona said, any support was very, very welcomed. Um, but I think it was very hard from primary care to know how to support people other than just to be there um, on the phone, unfortunately, and just someone else that they could talk to about things. Yeah, I think uh, I think just to pick up, uh, to follow on from that and to pick up on an earlier point Fiona made, I think that the uh, what one has to be careful about with follow-up services is that, uh, well, first of all, it's all got to be about making sure that families are listened to that's really important and uh, uh, uh and, ma and making every effort you can to listen to families concerns and, and so on and so forth but i think the other thing is is that not to put is not to push ourselves on people so we've been doing bereavement follow-up for a very long time but i've got a colleague who's been doing it for years and years and years um and uh, we're, we we send out uh, uh contacts uh, some weeks after uh, uh, the event um, and, and in fact we, we do so also more latterly for follow-up of, of ICU survivors as well um, but we don't uh, uh, we don't uh, push we don't expect people to turn up we don't send people to points <laughs> we send them opportunities and those opportunities are to come and talk to us either on site or not on site I've always been very concerned about follow-up services and simply re-traumatising people 
uh, and that's families just as much as uh, ICU survivors. Because I think, you know, I, I've always considered that what we do to, to patients is torture them. And if we talk to the patients, you haven't, you know, we haven't even begun to talk about the suffering that the families have. Seeing those monitors going up and down and wondering what every heartbeat means, what every number means, is really traumatic. And I don't think until people have been through the experience, anybody has any idea, because we all seem to think that there are technical solutions to uh, preventing life loss. You know, and there are some, but it's, you know, it's not universal. And, and uh, I think that the until people have been around, people have no idea of how uh, traumatizing uh, a period of critical care can be. Yeah, I think whatever <clears throat> whatever people's um, personal experiences, which obviously we won't get sucked into now, but you know, the, the professional experience is also limited, isn't it? I mean, I've never worked in ITU. I've obviously been on an ITU on a, on a war down with colleagues and I've worked in different departments in the hospital, but I've never done an ITU job. So for example, that reference to follow up, I had no idea that, that I, intensive care intensivists left the, left the department at all to do follow up clinics. That was, that was beyond my knowledge. So, so fascinating. And I guess that kind of leads us into where this might go. Um, and, and, you know, it's July. Let, let's hope there isn't a second wave. But if, if there was and potentially there might be, what going forward can we do in primary care to support you? Is there anything helpful that you are aware of or that you would like us to do to support relatives, you know, in, in future conversations? And I guess, as we were speaking about earlier, it's not just those patients who are on the ward with COVID, is it? Because if you're on a COVID intensive care, but actually you've had a brain injury or whatever else, then um, your relatives are also going to be impacted. So whilst, as you said, very few of us will have a lot of patients in primary care who have been on ITU with COVID, we may have relatives who have got a loved one on ITU with something else during the next few months. So I just wondered whether you had any hints or tips or anything we can do to support you, because as I said, we are all hugely indebted to what you've done and anything we can do to make your lives easier from our side, we are very happy to help you with. Well, well I think I think that the... Um... We're all we're all very concerned about the second peak because the first peak was extraordinary, and the first peak meant that, in, in particular, our anaesthetic colleagues and our ENT colleagues doing tracheostomies and so on, uh, you know, were hugely helpful. It was all focused around the flow of the patients in and out of intensive care, uh, uh, in the, in the be- with the best possible outcomes in mind, and the outcomes were were actually pretty good uh, nas- uh, uh, nationally. Um, uh, uh, but of course, if it happens again, it'll be happening when we've geared up to do the day job. And that is extremely concern- concerning because uh, then, uh, and we're, we're already in that situation actually uh, in our institution because we're going back, you know, we're about to become a major trauma center next month. You know, we're, we're, we're behind with our cancer work and so on and so forth. And so there's huge other pressures building. We're going to lose the anaesthetists because they're going to be going back to their day job, uh, you know, and all of a sudden it's all going to be uh, back on a, on a limited resource. So we need lots of help. I think in, te- in practical terms, one other thing, a couple of things are quite useful. There are now quite a lot of online resources for professionals as well as families uh, available. And uh, icusteps.org.uk uh, is a charity that uh, ha- has some good information, both for uh, patients, uh, relatives uh, uh, and professionals um, about ICU survivorship. Uh, your COVID recovery, uh, I think, is another one out of Leicester, I think that is. 
which, which is, uh, you know, the, now that the rehabilitation consultants have suddenly got involved in COVID because there's been a focus and an expectation there's going to be a huge amount of work. That's not a, as much of a surprise for us because we've always had issues with ICU survivors. I think in terms, it's, it's, uh, uh, we might think about, I don't know whether there's a need for it, and I think you, you need to tell us, is whether uh, we actually need some better way of communicating with primary care than we, we currently have. Uh, I think we tell you when we admit patients and we tell you when we discharge. We certainly tell you when we discharge patients on the portal. Uh, we sent, uh, and certainly when I was clinical director, which is a few years ago now, we always told patients when uh, GPs, when patients were admitted. But I think that actually a little bit of a discussion about what 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 could happen to give some professional support uh, as required uh, uh, would be helpful. Mindful as I am of uh, the pressures on your time as well, so I don't we don't want to make it a, a huge mm-hmm. industry. What we want to do, what what's the need for untimely. Well, thank you. That would be that would be useful, and I guess something that we could, you know, certainly take to colleagues in in health uh, primary care forums and see whether that is something that that we could link with. Rachel, have you got any other sort of inputs? I know the the colleagues, as Rachel was saying, that the sort of patients and and relatives that I sorry the relatives that I spoke to of people who you know unfortunately died of COVID, not necessarily on ITU but in the Heath. As Rachel alluded to, you know, actually at that point early on, you know, they were quite stoical and sort of aware that this bad thing was happening to the world. And, and, and this is a sad thing that, that they couldn't do anything about. But and I guess, you know, looking forward, will people's tolerance and, and, and ability to sort of steel themselves with that be as strong for a second wave, really? Rachel, have you had any sort of further comments in primary care at your side of Cardiff? Yeah, so another issue um, is people who've come out of intensive care, you know, I've certainly had experience with someone who've, who's had almost a post-traumatic stress type disorder, and it's really how we can support them with that, and, you know, it, how does intensive care support them? I suppose you were saying they do have follow-up clinics, is that the sort of thing that's dealt with there, is there psychological support as well? Those are really important questions, Rachel, and there's not much of it around. In England, uh, it's on the tariff, which is how the hospitals work. So it is theoretically funded, although services patchy. Here in Wales, we don't have a tariff. Uh, it is talked about as something that we have, uh, that we have, and we'd like to have. And certainly, in terms of psychology support, we are getting a little bit more now. Uh, uh, we've had a consultant, a consultant psychologist for critical care, both for staff well-being as well uh, for many years. In fact, we were one of the first uh, centres in the UK to have one. Um, uh, uh, but, uh, but that is now spreading a little bit. So I think the other intensive care services have some sort of psychology support from the hospital psych- psych- uh, health psychology department. So there is, there is a little bit of something there. Uh, we've invented a new syndrome. We love syndromes in intensive care. The post-ICU syndrome, the post-intensive care syndrome, and there's quite a lot written about that. And uh, uh, we ourselves did early research on PTSD with uh, Johnson Disson, who's one of the psychiatrists locally, had a big interest in that. Um, uh, and we also did it on the staff as well, um, because, of course, we're traumatising staff, not just patients and relatives, but staff too. Um, uh, so uh, there is there is quite a lot about that. I think that... Um, Full-blown PTSD is often referred to and is possibly not quite the case, um, uh, quite as frequently as people think. 
Uh, and of course, as we know, you know, you've got to be careful about how you support uh, those people. And again, it's about people coming to services when they're ready to do so rather than us pushing things on them. Um, uh, so there's all of that. But it's also the musculoskeletal stuff. So, for example, you lose about um, 100 grams of skeletal muscle a day on an intensive care unit because we use muscle as our energy source. So the people coming out, the survivors coming out, look like Belson victims, you know, not infrequently. They've lost a huge amount of muscle mass. And we know that even at five years after intensive care survivorship, the muscle mass is not fully regained. And this isn't just in our health system, it's in the American system and, and worldwide. So we're concentrating on trying to prevent the muscle loss as much as possible whilst patients are in intensive care, because prevention is better than cure. Uh, but unfortunately, with the, dexa, with the dexamethasone trial, we're about to add in, we're adding in treatments that are going to make the situation worse. So we are going to get a lot of, I mean, people talk about a post-viral syndrome. Well, we talk about post-ICS syndrome. You know, it's a huge problem. And I think that primary care is going to become rapidly aware of these people because I think some of them will be very heavy service users. And we are not set up yet uh, to, uh, 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 to address that, although government is, I think, talking about it. And there are one or two people who are talking about it a great deal. I've yet to see huge throughput. Uh, but and then I think also the uh, the issue will uh, the issue is not just in COVID patients. It's really important to say that it's in all patients. It's in all ICU survivors. Um, on the on the bereavement uh, front and and death, I think one of, one of the in in the UK, I think there's a great understanding amongst the British public that if you're coming to intensive care for treatment, things are pretty bad, and that makes and although we would say that we're not admitting anybody who we wouldn't have a reasonable expectation of surviving. So they're all unplanned deaths, if you like, uh, uh, that people that do understand the seriousness of it. And we do do a lot of this because we've got a high mortality rate. So we are, we are well used to uh, doing this in an acute situation. Uh, uh, but I think that uh, we're going to, we know that those f bereaved families and so on are using primary and community services more uh, and I think better communicate and better education actually rather than us setting up specialist clinics. I mean yes we need specialist clinics for particular issues uh, and uh, I've regularly for example on the hospital ground round in the he's talked about these the sorts of issues we have post ICU whether it's foot drop or uh, contractures or muscle loss or cognitive changes that's quite important because people uh, with intensive care uh, have cognitive changes. Uh, I, don't, I don't think it's related to hypoxemia. I think it's related to the whole experience of critical illness and the cytokine storm and so on and so forth. And it's not COVID related. I think it's, uh, 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 it's related to the experience of critical illness generally. So I think there are a huge number of, of, of things that we could do. And there's certainly a role for uh, perhaps a little bit more education uh, um, and maybe we need to be thinking about how, how we can do that to equip people to understand uh, that actually five years on from intensive care, people are still weak. Um, there are follow-up arrangements, of course. Um, you know, I think the chest physicians are lining up to do the follow-up arrangements in terms of breathlessness, uh, which we're expecting, and so on and so forth, which will be important. And the thrombotic complications of ICU, I think people are going to be worried about looking out for pulmonary hypertension, 
um, as a long as, as a long term. So there are a whole variety of issues that need to be. It's not simple. It's multi-system, and uh, I'm afraid that's the nature of the beast. I mean, I think we could continue this conversation for a very long time, Mark. It is absolutely yeah. fascinating, yeah. and I'd. I, you know, I've seen some of the coverage. One of my colleagues is, is one of your um, rehabilitation um, adult health professionals. You know, one of my good friends, I should say. Um, and, and, you know, I think their work is coming to the fore, isn't it, with this? And, and people are becoming aware of, of how much they actually do it and give to this and how important they are. But I just I'm aware of time. I just wanted to ask one one question, which um, I hope you're um, comfortable answering, which would be. Um, Intensive care team, you've mentioned them a lot, have, have taken a huge battering with this. I don't think you know, it goes without saying, doesn't it? And I guess, how are you all feeling in terms of morale and steering yourself ahead of a second wave? I know you said you're sort of working, you know, you're getting back onto some sort of treadmill of normal work. But, you know, you must have all been through an awful lot with this. And I guess, you know, how ready is, how ready is Wales? How ready is ITU for, for a second week? Very good question. Um, my own impression is that those of us who are, who have, well, in, in the medical, amongst the medical staff, I'm sure that there are some people who have found this very difficult. But in the main, certainly, uh, uh, I think that actually at another level, uh, we've all trained for this. And actually it's been a very invigorating experience as well. So I think, uh, but of course we have a huge advantage, we and the therapists all have a huge advantage and that is that we're not there all the time. And I think the people who've taken the, the burden of this are the care workers and the, and the bedside nurses. And there, I think we've got urgent work to do. Um, I don't think the, the explanations yesterday as to why the Chancellor's not going to give them a pay rise are going to go down very well. And uh, um, I, I, I think that actually we've got to be very careful about that because I think we could see a big turnover um, in nursing staff. And I'm very concerned, as I say, about nursing and care staff uh, turnover and burnout, because I think that would really, they couldn't open the Nightingale Hospital in London, not because they didn't have enough ventilators, but they didn't have enough staff. And I think actually we've all got to get the workforce things spot on. uh, And that really is the most important thing. Thank you, and I'm sure all of us would, would um, you know, be happy to support, you know, your colleagues as much as we can in primary care as well. I, I know I've had some conversations with some of your staff for various reasons through this, but I'm, I'm sure there's a, there's a lot of burden for those healthcare workers as well. So something really to be mindful of. Yeah. I'm going to conclude the conversation here just because of time, but I'm sure we could go on longer. Um, any links that you've mentioned, like the ICU steps and things like that, we can uh, get the details of and link to this podcast. So please do click on those if they are relevant to you. Um, but thank you ever so much, Dr. Mark Smithies, for your time this morning. And to Dr. Fiona Rawlinson and Dr. Rachel Lee. Thank you. Thank you.